Hey, good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm so glad you are worshiping with us today. And if you have a Bible with you, would you please open up to the book of Romans? This morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. And if you are new with us, if you're new to the Bible, I especially want to encourage you to open up a Bible uh, so you can track along with us through our study this morning. Uh, and uh, to help you find your place in the Pew Bible, if that's the Bible you're using today, uh, you'll find our passage starting on page 1006, and it goes over to page 1007. I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open the whole time. There's a lot happening in this passage, and it'll be it'll just make life easier for you if you can refer back to it uh, on the regular. And uh, take a couple of notes this morning, and you'll be in good shape. I'm excited to represent my favorite student ministry today. Uh, I've got two kids in our student ministry. I've got two that have graduated from our student ministry. I'm grateful for the investment of this church, uh, of our leaders, uh, and our students. And you have so many incredible reasons to be excited about what God's doing among teenagers in our church. It's really incredible what the Lord is forming in them and doing in them. Do you know we have nearly 30 different schools represented in our student ministry? And yet, uh, the gospel holds them together, and we've got incredible adult leaders who are pouring into them week after week, and so uh, be proud of our teenagers, be an encourager to them for sure. And uh, I wonder, if you were with us last week, I gave you a bit of a challenge for working on renewing your mind uh, by spending extra time with the Lord. How'd that go for you this week? How was your worship during the week? And, and do you come in here continuing your worship? I, I, I hope you do. And I hope maybe you took some tangible steps in your schedule to have more time with God, uh, to see your mind renewed in various ways. And uh, we continue in our study of Romans chapter 12 this morning. Our culture is full of unwritten rules for how we treat people in different social settings and situations. For example, uh, when I'm driving my 1953 Ford pickup down the road, and you come towards me in your classic car also, we are required by law to full hand wave at each other. Not just, you know, two fingers on the steering wheel type of deal. It's your classic car, my classic car, full hand wave. Might be point out the window. Might be thumbs up. Could be all three. That's happened before, that type of thing. We just became best friends, us and our old cars, as we drove past each other. That's, it's not written down anywhere. But it's just known when you, when you drive your car, that's what you do. Uh, and that's not the only place. We, we've got all kinds of unwritten rules for all kinds of social settings. When you host someone in your house, you abide by rules as a host. They abide by rules as a guest. The host doesn't put the guest to work, and the guest doesn't start rearranging furniture. All of our lives are lived in the context of relationships, relationships with those we're close to and relationships with those we may not know, may not ever know, but instead, there are indeed rules for all of these types of relationships. And we all have choices about how we treat those in our lives, the people we're closest to, as well as the strangers we pass in the grocery store, as well as our enemies. So how does being a follower of Jesus inform the way we treat 
the various people in our lives? How does the gospel impact how we treat fellow believers in the church? How does it impact how we treat our enemies? These were not hypothetical scenarios for the early church in the city of Rome. The instructions that Paul gave to this church here in Romans chapter 12 is said in real life situations. This small new church needed to know how to treat those inside the church though they came from so many different backgrounds and life situations. They also had to know how to treat those outside the church who they would consider perhaps enemies because of the way they were treated in the shadow of the Roman Empire. How does a Christian live in the empire? What should our fellowship look like? What should our reaction to suffering and hardship look like? Again, not hypotheticals. These are the very real questions that the Roman church has, and they're the issues that Paul addresses here in the second half of chapter 12. You see, for the Roman church, the gospel was not just about what happened to a person after they died. It was very much about what happened to them while they lived. And so in this part of Paul's letter, the church in Rome learned to be like Christ in their relationships, in their ethics, and in their experience of suffering. That's what this passage accomplishes for us as well. Today we learn about being image bearers of Christ in our interactions with different people. You see, followers of Jesus possess an ethic that transcends the rules of culture. Our rules of engagement come from Jesus and are defined by the cross. And so you have a potentially difficult choice to make this morning. Romans chapter 12 is going to call us to live according to a relational ethic that is possibly very different from what you are already practicing. And so as a follower of Jesus, what will you do? Will you respond to people the way Jesus wants you to respond? Will the gospel inform how you treat those in the faith and those outside the faith? Or will you continue in your own way, perhaps even a culturally approved way? Well, my goal today is to persuade you to love people the way Jesus has loved you. And he has loved you as an enemy of the cross. He has loved you as a stranger to grace. He has loved you as his child. And when we learn to love others the way Jesus has loved us, well, then our homes, our churches, our communities will be more like heaven on earth. So Romans 12, 9 through 21 teaches us how to love two different groups of people uh, the way Christ has loved us. I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Paul says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone 
evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. This passage reads more like the book of Proverbs than it does a Pauline epistle. It's full of these short, punchy statements, just one exhortation after the other, just machine-gunned at the reader. And all of these statements have to do with how God's people treat others. And we're going to approach this by separating all of humanity into two very broad groups. In this passage, Paul compels us to follow the way of Jesus as we love those inside the faith and as we respond to those outside the faith. Those are the two very broad groups. And let's start with the first group. Paul tells us first how to love our fellow believers, and the first thing he tells us is to love your fellow believers as Christ loved you. From verses 9 to 13, Paul gives 13 different exhortations for loving your fellow believers. And then if you skip verse 14, verses 15 and 16 also deal with loving fellow believers, which is why I've included them in this section. Those verses contain five more exhortations for loving fellow believers, which brings us to a grand total of 18 requirements for how gospel-believing people are to treat each other. Now, your immediate pushback might be this. You might say, why are these only about relationships in the church? I mean, shouldn't we love people outside the church the same way we do inside the church? And you're right. Uh, what We're not setting up here a system of hypocrisy where we can love people one way in the faith and we can justify foolish behavior to people outside the faith. That's not at all what this is about. There should be a consistency in the way we love all people in a manner that's reflective of our experience of Christ's love. However, there is a unique dynamic in a relationship between believers. Uh, Some of the commands that Paul gives us here in chapter 12 cannot be fulfilled with non-believers. They're only fulfilled in the context of a relationship in a local church. Also, Jesus himself put a special emphasis on our relationships with each other as believers. One example of that is John 13, 35, where Jesus said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The way we care for each other is a witness to the watching world. When the world sees Christians loving each other the way Jesus told us to, well, they'll see a glimpse of heaven. They'll want to know more. We put so much energy and effort into apologetics and learning to debate, learning to defend. and do. Look, The greatest apologetic to the watching world is Christians who love each other the way Christ has loved us through great sacrifice and compassion. So if we truly care about the souls of our neighbors, then we'll work hard to love each other in the following 18 ways. You can't be serious. Not really 18 things. Let's just walk through it. 
Let's just see what happens. Let's just, there's a reason these things are here, and it's worth our time to uh, take a glance at them. So verse 9, let's start there together. This is how we love brothers and sisters in the faith. This is how South Shore Baptist Church should love each other. In verse 9, Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. So love should be without hypocrisy. Your translation might say, let love be sincere. Christian love is more than just cultural politeness to someone's face while covering up inner animosity. God's people are true to one another. Now, that doesn't mean we never disagree. It doesn't mean we never have conflict. But it means when we do, when those things arise, we address them. Love with hypocrisy would pretend like everything's okay when, in fact, we have an issue that we need to resolve. But love that's true and sincere looks at the friction in our relationships and says, let's address it in the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Paul also tells us in verse 9, detest evil, cling to what's good. Isn't it interesting that the command to love is followed with a command to hate? Let love be without hypocrisy, hate evil or detest evil. But here we have to use caution. What's the evil that we should hate? Now, to be sure, there's evil in the world that we find detestable. But we can define evil with greater clarity if we just stay in chapter 12. You might remember that back in verse 2, God's people are told not to conform to the pattern of this world. So when it comes to hating evil, we probably should start with our own sin and brokenness. We must detest evil, but we must cling to what's good. That word picture is really vivid. Grasp it, cling to it, hold it, glue yourself to it. Don't let go of it. No matter what situation we face as a family of faith, we want to respond with good. We want to respond in a way reminiscent of the love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 10 tells us to love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. To love each other deeply means to be devoted to each other from the inside out. The expectation is that we would strive for relationships that go deeper than just surface level. We must invest in each other's lives and show true care and concern for each other. And what's more, we must be willing to share our lives with each other as well. You know, sometimes we're really good at asking the how are you question, but we're not so good at answering the how are you question. How are you? Fine. Boom. Off we go. We're not fine. We're not good. There's a whole mess of problems going on. And to, look, to be fair, not every passing interaction is fit for that sort of gut-level exposure. I, I get it. We have some surface-level relationships that fine gets the job done. But there are times when we're asked that question from a person we trust, a person we know, and we expose our fragility to them we say here, I need you to help me. That's what it looks like to love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Verse 10 also tells us to outdo one another in showing honor or to eagerly honor one another. The, the implication is that we don't walk in the doors to be honored, but to do the honoring. 
when we worship together, when we get together in any capacity, when we see one another out and about, we want to outdo the other one in honor. Where else in a person's life can they come to be honored? It may not happen at home. It sure isn't going to happen at work or in the marketplace. But the church is where people who the world might shame would enter and be honored by their family of faith. Verse 11 don't lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Verse 11 describes the passions we employ as we serve God. These three very quick statements all are about passion. We, we don't lack diligence in zeal. It means don't be spiritually lazy in your service to the Lord. Be zealous. Uh, uh, passionately pursue Him. Serve Him. Don't just be a mere spectator or a sponge, but, but rather employ your gifts, as he told us earlier in chapter 12, for the good of the church and the glory of God. So don't lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Uh, that means to be set on fire by the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, at one point in his ministry, was, was ready to give up, ready to quit. But, but he said this, he said, I, I, I can't stop because his word is in me like a fire in my bones. That same sort of picture is to characterize people of faith. Be set on fire by the Holy Spirit. Let the, the Holy Spirit of God give you this intense, fiery passion to serve the Lord. And that's the final exhortation in verse 11 is to serve God. That's the direction of our passion. Our zealous, fiery passion is collectively used to serve God. Verse 12 also has three quick exhortations all on endurance. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. So to rejoice in hope means to celebrate because God's promises are true. You can rejoice in hope in every situation you face. There is no situation we as a people of faith will, will face that would not be proper for us to rejoice in hope. Every funeral is an opportunity to rejoice in hope because God's promises are true. He holds us all the way. So no matter what the situation is, we have an opportunity. Not, not to, we're not painting on plastic smiles. But we are anchoring ourselves in the sure and true word of God. We can rejoice in hope because God keeps his promises to us. And then Paul tells us, be patient in affliction. It's a command to all of us. You're not alone in the challenges you face together. We are patient as we go from strength to strength in every affliction. And then finally, in verse 11, be persistent. Excuse me, verse 12, be persistent in prayer. Keep praying. Don't stop praying. And when you pray, celebrate the hope you have in the promises of God. And when you pray, ask for patience as you endure your affliction. When you pray for others, pray that they would rejoice in the hope of God and that they would be patient in their affliction. And when you pray, carry the burdens of those you love to the throne of God. Pray as if no one else is praying for the people you love. Don't stop praying. We have to pray always at all times in all situations. Verse 13, he continues to teach us how to love each other. He says, share with the saints in their needs and pursue hospitality. 
Both of these statements are concerned with caring for people in real physical need. Share with the saints in their needs can also be translated as contribute. Rather than share, it would be contribute to the saints in their needs. The sharing is not merely cheap sympathies like, oh, be warm and well-fed. But rather, the sharing is meeting another's physical need, a monetary need, a need for a coat, a need for groceries, a, a need for a friend, a need for an ear. Whatever it is, we meet the physical need. This was exemplified for me uh, by a pastor friend in Uganda who, speaking to his poor church one day, uh, was describing a situation they were facing. There were other people in their community who wanted to worship with them at the church. But it's a shameful thing to show up to church in that culture just in your rags. And so there were people who just didn't have the right clothes to wear. They didn't have proper clothes to wear. They just had rags. And so the pastor said to his church, we need to gather up some clothes to give to these brothers and sisters so that they can worship with us. And so go home, and if you have two suits, bring one of them back to church. And if you have two dresses, bring one of them back to church. And these people who have nothing gave what they had for those who really had nothing so that they could all worship together. This is how we share in the needs of the saints. We meet each other's physical needs. I, I have praise for you, South Shore Baptist Church, in this. One avenue through which we meet the needs of the saints is our deacons fund. Uh, it's a, it's a, a benevolence fund for uh, people connected to our church who are going through difficult times. And you give generously to that. Thank you for allowing us that ministry. You give our deacons a powerful resource to pull from to help people in their needs. So thank you for your generosity in that. We have to share with the saints in their needs. We must pursue hospitality. I have a friend who lives in the Middle East, and there they practice hospitality on a level that we are not familiar with in New England. There, if you visit a friend's house and you say, I like that picture, you will go home with that picture. And it would be an offense to the person who owns the picture if they try to give you the picture. You're like, oh, no, 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 no. I just like it. I don't want it. That's not an option. Hospitality requires if you like it, you take it. My friend said that he can walk into any village in his country and within an hour, he knows nobody, but within an hour, he'll be sitting in someone's house, drinking tea and eating food, and he will have an offer of a place to stay. This is in a non-Christian Middle Eastern country. And if that is what the hospitality of a non-believer looks like, how much grander should it look for Christians to pursue hospitality with each other? We must pursue hospitality to give of ourselves above and beyond what is culturally appropriate or required in a way reminiscent of the cross. Paul's final instructions for how to love our fellow believers found in verses 15 and 16. Look at it with me. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And so love enters deeply into the emotional experiences of other people. We celebrate together, we weep together, we experience all of these emotions in solidarity with one another. 
In verse 16, live in harmony with each other. Uh, We're to have one mind, to be like-minded. The same thing that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And then, don't be proud, but instead associate with the humble. Like, there's, just, there's no room for snobs in the family of faith. Uh, You've got to put your cool card in your back pocket, and you have to be for the people around you. You cannot outdo one another in giving honor while walking in the doors, pounding your chest like you're a big deal. All throughout chapter 12, he calls us to humility in our relationships with each other. In verse 9, we started by, with Paul telling us to detest evil. Well, certainly my own pride is an evil that I must detest and strive in active repentance to move away from. And so, boom, 18 things Paul's just given us. This is what it looks like when God's people love each other. And, and perhaps we could summarize them with a few broader words. Here's some of the words we've used to describe the way Christians love each other. It's true. Our love is good, sincere, bestows honor, serves God passionately, endures. It's generous, sympathetic, harmonious, and humble. This is a lofty list. To be sure, this is both who we are and who we are becoming. We don't have it right all the time, which is exactly why it's right here for us. The answer is not to say, oh, we're just a bunch of hypocrites, we'll never do this, but rather in the grace that God gives us to lean into this way of loving each other in a way that brings honor to God and glorifies Christ. This list is not natural. It's not aligned with our cultural values. There might be some overlap. There might be some shadows of of common ground. But really, this list transcends all cultures and calls us to walk in the ways of Jesus who laid his life down for us. What is it that makes a church truly special? Is it architecture? Is it worship style? Production value? A dynamic, central personality? Is it huge amounts of people? In light of Romans 12, I'd say no. That's that's not, those are not the things that make a church special. What we've learned here is that the most special churches are the churches that operate as Christ incarnate, where worshipers love each other deeply and sincerely. Now, that being said, every church exists in a context of struggle. And so having clarified how worshipers are to love one another, Paul next moves to what our posture should be to those in the outside world. And that's where Paul takes us next. He's told us this is how Christians love Christians, but now how do Christians love their enemies? The second thing Paul teaches us this morning is to love your enemies through service not through retaliation. Love your enemies through service, not through retaliation. In this section, verse 14, and then verses 17 through 21, there are four prohibitions. What I mean by that is is there are four do not statements that Paul gives us. Let me show them to you. In verse 14, he says, do not curse those who persecute you. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not avenge yourself. Do not be conquered by evil. These are the four do nots here at the end of Romans 12. 
They all say essentially the same thing, just in different ways. They prohibit Christians from retaliation. But we're not left only with the things we're not supposed to do. Each of these negative comments also comes with a positive counterpart. Let me show you what those are. In verse 14, don't curse your persecutors. Instead, bless your persecutors. Verse 17, don't repay evil for evil. Instead, do what's honorable in the eyes of everyone who's watching. Verse 19, do not avenge yourself, but rather leave it to God. Verse 21, don't be conquered by evil, but rather conquer evil with good. So verse 14, the first prohibition, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Where would Paul get an idea like this? Well, he got it from Jesus, who in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 said, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To be persecuted means to be mistreated due to your faith. Paul is an expert on persecution because he has experienced it from both sides. You see, Paul writes not just as a Christian who has suffered, but as one who made Christians suffer. I have to believe that as Paul writes these words, he recalls his own past treatment of God's people. And maybe he calls on Christians to bless their persecutors because he remembers what it was like the day he did coat check at the stoning of Stephen, the first man killed for his allegiance to Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, Paul held people's coats so it was easier for them to heave stones at Stephen as they slowly executed him. Now, these are not theoretical words for Paul's audience. Christians in Rome, uh, we believe, were suffering persecution at the time. That's why it shows up in this letter. And Christians in Rome, we know, would go on to suffer some of the most horrific treatment for being followers of Jesus Christ. As they were lit on fire, fed to animals, lived in caves, saw families torn apart, did they recall this line from Paul, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Why would we do this? Well, this is how Jesus loved you. We have to remember Romans chapters 1 and 2, the kinds of sinners that we are. Jesus died for rebellious, mean, sinful people, enemies of the cross. And that's what makes the cross so amazing because that's the way God has chosen to treat his enemies, to love them and to sacrifice for them for our salvation. If we're saved in this way, then we can live in this way. Because after all, isn't that what being a living sacrifice looks like? I'm telling you, there are these phrases that we love from Romans chapter 12, but they call us to a rigorous way of following Jesus, a truly challenging way. Don't curse, but bless. Can it be said of you that you bless your enemies. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. You see, the evil done to us is an opportunity for good to overcome it. Evil is done away with by good. We don't battle evil with more evil. We counter evil with good. And the cross of Jesus Christ destroys the power of evil and death. So we dare not take our suffering 
as justification for evil. We don't take injustice done to us as justification for evil. And more importantly, Paul in verse 17 wants us to remember that the world is watching us. He says, do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. That doesn't mean poll the crowd and what the majority says is honorable, do that. We already know what's honorable. Christ has taught us through the sacrifice of Himself. And so, do that which is honorable, which Christ has called us to, in the eyes of everyone, while the world is watching us suffer and be persecuted, respond in the way of the cross to those who are watching. Verse 18, he tells us, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I think that verse had to be really important for the early church. You see, Paul doesn't paint an idealistic picture as if just loving your enemy is going to automatically change a bad situation into a good situation. Sometimes you're going to love your enemy all the way to your death. They'll never be changed. The treatment will never get better. But as far as it depends on you, live at peace with that person. That means our posture is always that of a peacemaker. Not the vengeance taker, not the punishment deliverer, the peacemaker. Now, living at peace with our enemies does not mean that reconciliation is possible in every situation on this side of eternity. There are some situations where reconciliation is physically impossible. There are some situations where reconciliation may not be a wise course of action. There are some situations that will not be fully reconciled until we stand before the throne of God together. And so wisdom doesn't mean that my abuser is welcomed back into my life, but rather I'm going to be a peacemaker to that person. I'm going to leave vengeance to God. I'm going to leave judgment and punishment to God. You see, here's the deal. We, we feel like if, if I'm a peacemaker to a person who has wronged me, then they're just getting off scot-free. Uh, they're not going to suffer any sort of punishment. Uh, like what, so I just, I just take the hit and they get to walk. They don't go free. Their sins will be paid for to the fullest measure. Our understanding of the gospel, our singing of the gospel just a moment ago assures us of this. Either they will bear the brunt of their sins under the judgment of God, or by their faith in Christ, their punishment goes to the cross in full. All sin endures the wrath of God. No one gets off free. So we can trust God in His judgment and mercy to avenge us, but more than that, to avenge His own name and His own holiness in the sin that has been committed against Him and Him only. So we're not to seek revenge, but peace and leave vengeance in the hands of God. So in verse 20 having left vengeance in the hands of God. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. What a strange word picture. Here's what it sounds like is, I'm going to be nice to my enemy, and then 
God's judgment on them will intensify. Ha ha, take that. Here's a cup of water. Burn. Ha <laughs> ha. Hey, here's, here's a burrito. I hope you fry. That's, that's kind of the word picture, heaping fiery coals on their heads. But that's not, that's not what Paul's giving us here. The word picture is far more radical than that. The fiery coals you heap on your enemy's head are the coals of conviction over their sinful treatment of you and their sin against God. And by feeding them and giving them something to drink, your enemy who's been persecuting you will experience the compassion of Christ and they may fall under conviction for their sin and turn to God and go from being your enemy to being your brother or sister in the faith. So leave vengeance to God. Bless those who persecute you. Paul's final instruction in verse 21, don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. How would you know if you were conquered by evil? Is that proven in the midterms? You would know you're conquered by evil, not by what is done to you, but by your response to what is done to you. When we curse our enemy, when we repay evil for evil, when we avenge ourselves, we have been conquered by evil. But when we bless, when we do what is honorable, when we care for our enemies and entrust them to God, then we are overcoming evil by good. You don't overcome evil with greater weapons or venom or contempt. Jesus has shown us that love is stronger than evil. And so let us love our enemies through service and not with retaliation. Paul is pushing all of our buttons this morning. He's really pressing us into places that are uncomfortable. Church is a lot easier when it's just a, a, a spectator event and I don't really have to engage anyone or be vulnerable with anyone. And you know what? There's something about vengeance and anger and keeping score that I like when it comes to people who have hurt me. But Paul has shown us the power of love to those inside the faith and outside the faith, those who are our family and those who are our enemies. To one another, our love is sincere and true, and to our enemies, we serve them, never seeking vengeance. And in all this, we are walking in the steps of Jesus. Here's where you might object and say, look, I'm, I'm fine with loving other Christians, but there's no way I can love my enemy. Paul did not know how intense and powerful my enemy would be. You're wrong. You are absolutely I don't doubt your enemy is powerful and this situation has messed with you and left deep wounds. But because I love you, I'm going to tell you, you are wrong. The issue is not that Paul didn't understand how powerful your enemy is. Rather, you don't understand how powerful love is. See, if the Bible told us God is rage, then you could justify your unfettered anger. And if the Bible told us God is wrath, then you could justify taking up arms. But the Bible tells us God is love. And if that's who He is, then that's who we should be as well. Are you a loving person? 
The question is not, are you a nice person? Are you a loving person in the way that Christ has loved you? Are you bent towards self-sacrifice for the benefit of others? Are you a loving person to those in your social circles? Are you a loving husband, a loving wife? Are you rejoicing in hope as you set your eyes on the resolution of conflict and brokenness in your marriage? If you have kids, are you a parent who loves your kids with the self-sacrificial love of Christ? Who are you at work and with your neighbors and with your church? Do you love people the way Christ has loved you? Is there anything more unappealing than a mean Christian? Someone with just a nasty attitude. Look, some Christians try to justify their abrasiveness by saying, I'm just telling the truth. It's not my fault if people are offended by the truth. But here's a truth for you. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is kind. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. I cannot overstate how important it is that God's people love each other in this way. The last few years have created incredible opportunities for animosity and brokenness in churches across our country. So many pressure points, so many opportunities to divide, and so many churches have taken advantage of those opportunities. But here, the way of Christ is the better way. What if you're not convinced by Paul? What if, what if you just, you know, I don't have this demeanor in me? Well, here's my challenge to you. Every day in the next week, I want you to set aside time to read an account of the crucifixion of Christ. If we're to love each other and to love our enemies the way Christ has loved us, then let's look at how Christ has loved us. And let's meditate on that image so you can find four different passages in the Gospels that describe the crucifixion of Christ. How will you love your church? How will you love your enemies? You can learn by sitting with Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19. Read, sit quietly, and pray this, Father, teach me to love as I have been loved. Christian, you will not be able to look at Christ on the cross and remain unchanged. In this passage we've studied today, every description of love is a brushstroke in a portrait of Jesus. He is the perfect fulfillment of every one of these requirements that Paul has given to us. Let us look to Jesus so that we will love like Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ... I wonder if it surprises you to know that you are loved by Him. You may come from some sort of religious background or just a personal conclusion that God hates you, is disappointed in you, is ashamed by you. His posture towards you is love, and that's proven through the gift of His Son who died in your place for your sin. And if you will turn from your sin in yourself and turn to Jesus Christ, trust in Him as your Savior, You'll be forgiven, made new, given eternal life. All of this given to you because you are loved by God. Today, come to Him 
and experience this love that never fails, that is patient, and you can rejoice in the hope of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, teach us to love as we have been loved. Teach us to love unapologetically, sacrificially, boldly, without hesitation, without expectation of anything in return. Let us love the way we've been loved. When we look to the cross, we see love exemplified in the extreme where our Savior laid down His life for us. Let South Shore Baptist Church be the kind of church where we strive intentionally to rejoice with each other, to weep with each other, to walk with each other in truth, not in hypocrisy, to detest evil, to cling to what is good. And Lord, when the watching world looks at us and the way we treat those who might be considered enemies, well, let, they, let them see Jesus in us and be drawn to the beautiful gospel so that they too can know the hope of Christ. Father, thank you for loving us and teaching us how to love. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.